0: The warm night wind sings through the Everglades and blows silver clouds across the face of the full moon. Out from the shallows of the swamp he comes, shambling, his massive misshapen form drenched and dripping with the slime of the tepid water of his shadowy home. Hello everyone and welcome to the Nexus of All Realities, a Man-Thing podcast. I'm Paul Matthew Carr, your guide to the weird... The wacky, the often wonderful, of a '70s swamp-based monster comic, and it feels good to say that again. Been gone for a while. It's uh, it's been over a year since I last recorded one of these. Uh, lots of things have changed since then, both internally and externally. My uh, my personal life is just uh, just wow, so different. Not gonna go into detail, but it's as it's as if someone on high said, "Hey." You know that life you're leading with the the work and the friends and the relationships? Yeah, yeah, well, we're going to take all that away from you and give you a whole new one. Is that cool? No? Yeah, well, we're going to do it anyway, so uh, learn to deal. <laughs> as for the outside world, the, uh, the global situation, as it were, um, what the hell's going on? Can we just settle down for a little bit? Uh, can we just deal with one crisis at a time, please? <laughs> This catastrophe multitasking is getting a bit out of hand, so how about we take it down a notch? What do you say? <laughs> By the way, I'm I'm completely off script right now. This is not the way I wanted to start the episode, uh, which bodes well for the relaunch since I can't get through the intro without <laughs> rambling off topic a bit. Uh, but that being said, uh, it does bring to mind something I've been thinking about quite a bit recently. Oh, I guess I, I'm still rambling and going off script, but... I'll get I'll get to the script in a minute. But this does pertain to Man Thing or at least this show. When I look at the world situation right now, the the politics, conflicts, the overall discourse, I'm surprised at the parallels to the 1970s, which is of course the time period when this comic Man Thing was written and released. There was at that time um war, economic troubles, inflation, an oil crisis, environmental concerns, political upheaval, um, distrust of leaders, uh, you know, Watergate and the fallout from that, terrorism, and very damaging conspiracy theories and outright lies that, was, that, were, that were in circulation that kind of muddied the waters of, of, of conversation. Now, there are obvious differences. It's not a one-to-one comparison. The biggest difference being the way information is consumed, the speed of which information is disseminated. The internet and social media are both wonderful and horrible simultaneously. Uh, Podcasts, this show, would not have, could not have existed back in the 70s. Uh, Back then, the nexus of all realities would have probably been a fanzine, distributed by mail once every few months, which to be fair. Would have been faster than me actually recording and releasing these episodes. All that is to say that despite the differences, the parallels are there. And like I said, it's it's been something that's on my mind. And you may see, will see, comparisons to current events combined with the historical context of the stories going forward. Um, there are many, 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 many ways to critique a text. Uh, my friend Brian. My, uh, Brian Reese, who is my co-host over at the Collected Edition, he likes to do deconstruction of a text. It's um, not really my jam. There are, of course, other readings like feminist, Marxist, conservative, queer theory. <laughs> there are tons, tons of ways to look at a text and, and, and analyze it. Uh, historical criticism is primarily what I like to focus on, putting a work, be it books, film, TV show, comics, what have you. I like to put it in its historical context or its social situation that it, or the social situation that it was written in, and and then try to give you an idea of of why it was written at the time. Uh, that's a very poor way of saying that, but I'm still going to be doing that. But because of these parallels, I may change up how I approach my reading of the text. Oh, man, that was a very long winded that was a very long-winded way to say, uh, I'm going to try new stuff in the future. That's pretty much it. So, um, what do you say we talk about a Man-Thing comic? Yeah, specifically, Giant Size Man-Thing number two. Insert your own Giant Size Man-Thing joke here. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going to let you come up with, with it on your own. Please feel free <laughs> to tweet them at me, at Nexus of All, or just giggle to yourself. So now that that's out of the way, let's move on. Like any animal, he is curious. However, unlike any other beast, he is plagued by the gnawing feeling that he really should be able to understand what these oddly shaped metal objects are supposed to do. Indeed, he can almost recall handling such devices himself once long ago but the memories always fade too quickly before he can take a hold of them before he can pin down just whose memories they are leaving him more empty than before leaving him only frustration and anger and finally despair Giant Size Man thing number 2 was written by Steve Gerber of course But the art on this issue, this time around, was by John Buscema. So I would like to take a few minutes to talk about John Buscema and his legacy. John Buscema was, to me... Now, you know what? I'm, I'm gonna do the anecdotal thing at the end. First, let me talk about who John Buscema was. John Buscema was a giant in the industry. And now that phrase is used a lot when speaking of the uh, of the classic creators. You know, people say, so-and-so was a giant. And sometimes it's deserved, and sometimes it's just nostalgia. But with John Buscema, it's not only deserved, it doesn't go far enough. His influence on the comic book industry as a whole, and Marvel in particular, is immense. It cannot be understated. In fact... It can be argued, and I intend to argue, that his influence on the Marvel style is second only to Jack Kirby, and in the 1970s, probably even more than Jack Kirby. And some may dispute this, because one of the common criticisms of Buscema's work was that he was a Kirby clone, uh, that he was just imitating Kirby and aping Kirby's work. I don't think that's fair, and I don't think it's right. But, okay, I'm getting ahead of myself. So, John Busema originally wanted to be a commercial artist in the vein of, say, like, you know, Norman Rockwell. But uh, but he got into comics. And he got into comics by answering a want ad for Timely Comics and was hired by Stan Lee. This was back in the 1950s. Timely would eventually morph over the years into Marvel Comics and Buscema would become... A fixture in the bullpen, the, the staff, writers, and artists. But in addition, he was also a a work-for-hire artist, working for a variety of publishers where he honed his skills and developed his own style. Now, he left comics for a while uh, to become a commercial artist, like he originally intended. But eventually, he came back when Marvel became Marvel. That, that is the, the Marvel that, as we know it, in the early 60s. And this is where the the Kirby clone criticism emerges that's a lot of alliteration there stanley would be proud let's face it think of it this way you know kirby changed how comics looked in the 1960s his action was dynamic and fluid he drew tricked out machines and vehicles and just added a new and unique way of presenting and laying out a comic this this was not the way busema was used to working it wasn't his style. But he was now working for a company and an audience that was expecting that Kirby style. So he adapted and emulated a Kirby esque look. That's not to say he copied Kirby. What he did was he learned from a master and became a better artist because of it. And you know, that's how people learn. If you want to be a good writer, You find an author you admire and you emulate their style till your own voice starts to be heard. If you want to be a better artist, you find an artist you like and you try to draw like them. If you want to play guitar, you find a guitarist you enjoy and you try to play like them, etc., etc. And you do this to get better. You try to get better at what you're doing and eventually your talent, your style begins to shine through. It's not stealing or ripping off or becoming a clone. It's learning. Anyway, Buscema's style did begin to shine. So much so, he became the go-to illustrator for some of the biggest titles and the and the top writers. And he would become the replacement for Kirby when Kirby eventually left Marvel. Buscema would go on to draw every... Well, okay, let me parse that because I'm not 100% sure. He would go on to draw almost every if not all the characters in the Marvel lineup at the time. And then in the early 1970s, Roy Thomas gave John Buscema a copy of Conan the Barbarian. Now, Buscema had always been he had always been an enthusiast or or had a penchant for drawing fantasy. And so he was determined to be the artist for this comic book adaptation the rights to which were recently acquired by Marvel. Oddly, even though he wanted to do it and was excited to do it, and Roy Thomas, who would be the writer, wanted him on the project, Buscema was not given the assignment. It was instead given to a young up-and-comer, Barry Windsor Smith. This was essentially a financial decision. You see, Marvel didn't know if this would sell. You know, it's not a, it wasn't a superhero comic, so would this thing sell? So they didn't want to pay Buscema, who was now getting top rates because he was one of the top artists in the field. So Barry Windsor Smith uh, began working on the first issues of of Conan the Barbarian. And and listen, Barry Windsor Smith, he's quite good at the art. (laughs) A slouch in the drawing department, Barry Windsor Smith is not. Apparently, apparently, apparently I speak like Yoda now. D- don't know why I phrased it that way, but I'm going to keep it in. Barry Windsor Smith drew the comic for 25 issues and the comic did well, well enough that Conan was seen as financially viable and Buscema was finally put on the comic. So when Barry Windsor Smith started drawing, he, when he drew Conan, he drew him as lean and thin limber you know muscled and built for sure but more athletic I guess you'd say whereas busema when he took over he made conan this hulking giant of a man he basically took the character back to its source material and when we think of conan this is what we think of this giant muscled and brutish man now busema would go on to do roughly 200 issues of Conan in both the titles Conan the Barbarian and Savage Sword of Conan. And this is really where, where Buscema shines. This is where, in my opinion, he comes truly into his own. His figures are naturalistic, but powerful and emotive. the The action, dynamic, and visceral. The backgrounds are elaborate and intricate. It's just it's just beautiful and glorious work. I mean, really, check out the stuff he did for Conan. It's it's just good. With Emma he would go on for years, not only drawing Conan, but doing superhero work and creating new characters. He even started his own art school at one point, and this didn't last very long. But there is a neat little DVD he did with Stan Lee, Drawing Comics the Marvel Way, which, uh, which I owned at one point in my life, and I really loved it. And now, this, and this of course brings me to my experience with John Buscema. His was a name that I saw constantly as a kid, although I pronounce it as Buskema. Pronunciation has never really been my thing. <laughs> but he drew many, many of my favorite comics, and I came to associate him with Marvel just as much as I did Stan Lee or Jack Kirby. I didn't see him as. Kirby's clone, I saw him as Kirby's equal. And in many ways, when I think back to my childhood, and I think of the look of Marvel Comics at the time, what I think of is John Buscema's art. He was a giant, and his shadow looms large over this industry. He helped elevate these silly little pulp stories for kids into an art form that is popular with all ages. And You know, let's face it, it pretty much dominates the entertainment industry today. He also drew Man-Thing, which I will talk about in just a moment. Hours, perhaps days have passed when the Man-Thing at last raises his head again. And even then, the return to such awareness as he is capable of is a slow, onerous process. But in time he struggles to his feet, glances about him, and surprisingly finds himself in the swamp. Could he have endured that torment, that agony for nothing? Was he tortured merely for someone's amusement? Why else would they have hurt him so, then leave him where they found him? Perhaps it's fortunate that the fog of confusion which enshrouds his mind prevents him from formulating such queries. He merely accepts his situation, and shuffles silently away, directly into a wall. Giant-sized Man Thing number two, of Monsters and Men, cover dated November nineteen seventy-four, written by Steve Gerber, art by John Buscema, inked by Klaus Janson, John Costanza letterer, colors by Linda Lesman, edited by Roy Thomas. Deep in the swamp, Manthing wanders through the abandoned F.A. Schist construction site, while an incredibly helpful narrator conveniently walks us through previous events, immensely helping a podcaster that hasn't done this for a while to get us up to speed with the situation. Then a police car arrives, carrying Vivian and Caroline Schist, the widow and daughter of F.A. Schist. Accompanied by a police officer, they want to inspect the site to find clues that the police might have missed, because that's a totally normal thing to do. While they look over the site, Man-Thing empathically connects with Caroline and, feeling confused by her conflicting emotions, tries to get close to her to understand them. This, quite understandably, freaks Caroline out. She runs screaming, which makes her mother, Vivian, also run screaming. The cop tries to stand his ground to defend the understandably freaked out women, despite his own fear. With all that fear being bandied about, Man-Thing becomes agitated. He hates fear more than any other emotion, so he tries to squelch the fear by lifting the cop off his feet and smashing him to the ground. This does not work. But the trio do manage to make it back to the car and speed off safely, while Vivian has a complete breakdown vowing to kill the monster once and for all. Alright, well, now this is this is pretty standard stuff for a Man-Thing opening. We get a, a recap for those who may never have read a Man-Thing comic before, and then the introduction of two new characters, the family of the now-deceased F.A. Schist. It's interesting that Gerber... Uh, chose to return to the the schist well you'd think that storyline had run its course but no, as we'll see, there's a lot more to come. Also it's interesting that man thing does not hurt the well okay I say he doesn't hurt the cop. He does brutally throw him to the ground like a ragdoll but he doesn't um, he doesn't burn his head off because of the whole fear thing. Uh, an indication that man thing can tell the difference between those who are evil and those who are just trying to defend themselves. I'm not sure if this was the intention, but it's 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 how I interpret it. and I, you know, I choose to think that that's what he was doing. Also, a minor thing really has no impact on the story. When the trio are back in the police car and are driving away, the panel shows the police car backing up in order to make a u-turn to go in the other direction in order to get out the way they came in., uh, this detail is really not needed. It could have just shown the car driving off, but, I wanted to point it out and highlight it because it's little details like this that Busema adds to the story that it just it just shows what a good visual storyteller he is and how he's really learned his craft and he just gets better after this. Yeah, Busema's really good at this. That being said, let's go to chapter two, The High Price of Vengeance. the Suburbs of Miami at the palatial estate of the Schist family, Vivian Schist tries to enlist the help of distinguished scientists to destroy and kill the man-thing, because the first rule of science is kill things for money. Oddly, there are no takers. However, a young biologist from New York, Dane Gavin, says he will capture the creature if the money is given as a donation, rather than a bounty, because semantics. Vivian Schist makes it clear she's not into the whole mercy thing, but she reluctantly agrees. Later, deep in the swamp, Dane Gavin and his team set a trap for the Man-Thing, a glass sphere that will snap shut when entered and will drain the moisture out of whatever is inside. This actually works. Man-Thing, curious, steps inside the trap and is drained of moisture till he passes out. When he wakes, dazed and confused, Man-Thing finds himself in the swamp and so decides to walk off and start his long day of wandering. But BAM! He runs smack into a wall and he is now in a specifically built habitat. Dane Gavin is happy to have accomplished his goal of capturing the creature, but is nagged by a feeling that he's done something wrong, mostly because he's done something wrong. Later, the board of trustees of the museum argues about whether Man-Thing should be put on exhibition. Dane Gavin argues against this idea, saying it would be too dangerous, while the other board members, which include Reed Richards and Tony Stark, argue for the idea because they're greedy bastards. So it's decided, Man-Thing will be displayed for rich people, but don't worry, Reed Richards and Tony Stark will oversee the whole exhibition themselves, and they never screw up. The first part of this chapter with uh, Dane Gavin setting up to capture Man-Thing is really really interesting, really really cool visuals. And it begins to set up a relationship between Dane and Caroline, which will become important later and in future issues. And we get to see more of Caroline's uh, conflict with Man-Thing. And she apparently really doesn't like her dad. I mean, which, fair enough, he was a dick. But still, she's essentially saying, you know, that massive swamp swamp creature, yeah, he may have killed my father, but yeah, my dad probably deserved it. So, familial relationships, eh, not very strong. And uh, the second part of this chapter in New York, we get some shoehorned-in references to the greater, greater Marvel universe. Now, it's nice to see Ben Grimm. Always love, always loves seeing a thing, and and the fact that he's kind of protective of Man Thing after their their meeting. A few issues back, but honestly, the Reed and Tony Stark addition to the board is in my opinion, not really needed they're just there to you know, do a pseudo-crossover I'll, I'll talk more about that in a bit and of course, as in many setups like this it's the greed and hubris of man that ends up leading to the inevitable tragic consequences I mean, come on, has no one ever seen King Kong? Well, you're going to get a subtle reprise of King Kong in the next chapter, which is Chapter 3, Man-Thing's New York Adventure. A week later, the museum holds a gala event to display its Man-Thing to its most generous patrons. This is probably illegal in most states, but they go ahead and do it anyway. In a packed auditorium, a curtain is pulled back to reveal Man-Thing's terrarium, and all in attendance gasp in fear. man who hates fear more than anything else, is overwhelmed by the amount of fear all at once, and in immense pain smashes the glass of his enclosure and begins to rampage through the museum. Reed Richards attempts to contain the creature with his stretchiness to no avail, while Tony Stark bemoans the fact he forgot to bring his Iron Man suit, proving once again that Tony Stark is the worst. Man-Thing's rampage eventually spills away from the party into the streets of New York, where he is accosted by police before staggering, bewildered and dehydrated, and collapsing headfirst into a fountain. This is a tragic event for a swamp creature, but also a typical weekend for most NYU freshmen. Realizing what they have done is wrong, Dane Gavin and Caroline Schist return Man-Thing to his Florida swamp, vowing to unlock the secret the creature. So yes, real King Kong vibes here. The big stage, the reveal, the bursting out of restraints, the running amok through New York. Uh, No climbing tall buildings though, which is a real missed opportunity. I love how Reed Richards tries to lasso Man-Thing with his stretched out arm Uh, first of all because he uses his arm as a lasso which is fun but also the way it just kind of oozes through Man-Thing's body and comes out the other side. The action in this chapter wraps up pretty quickly though it seems to be rushing towards the end to wrap up and reset the status quo as quickly as possible. Although it, it, it does, to be fair, it does set up Dane and Caroline as recurring characters. And there's some really nice purple prose by Gerber throughout, which, you know, that's always nice. And I find it interesting. Again, I, I guess I've been finding a lot of things interesting. But this really puts the idea of Man-Thing as a monster front and center. He is literally out of his element and simply lashing out in pain and anger, uh, just more of a wounded animal than anything else. And that's fine. It, it's fine for what it is. The giant sizes... Giant sizes? Giant sizes. <laughs> is that the plural? Is it, it's giant's size, maybe. <laughs> um, regardless, uh, the giant's size issues were, uh, were a strange thing. They are in continuity, but also done in such a way that you don't necessarily have to read them to follow the main ongoing title. So... In that sense, they are sort of like an annual, but different because the giant sizes are ongoing as well. Yeah, they're definitely an odd duck of a comic. Because they they're also seen as specials, you know, mini-events in a way, because, you know, they're oversized, they cost more. So they need, there needs to be a reason for them to exist. That's why the Fantastic Four and Tony Stark show up, to give the illusion that there is more to this story in the larger Marvel Universe. Even though in reality, they're really just glorified cameos. Now this this brings me to the idea of Man Thing in the Marvel Universe in general. I don't think works particularly well. Or to to put another thing, I don't think he works particularly well with other superheroes. At least, all right. Let me say at least at this time, uh, especially with Gerber writing, I've often felt that Man Thing works best when he. When he has standalone stories or short story arcs, uh, maybe two or three issues, because I feel Steve Gerber works best that way. With these short stories, he's able to tell basically allegories, or I guess a better way to put it is um, is morality plays, where he's able to focus on a subject or an issue that was happening at the time and create characters that fit that narrative in order to highlight those issues in order to satirize or parody, parody those issues with Manthing as the catalyst that propels the story along as observer and reluctant participant. However, he, he, meaning Gerber, was not always allowed to do that. It seems, and again, this is speculation on my part, just a feeling I get when reading this comic and knowing some of the history of Marvel at the time, that being a standalone, almost pseudo-anthology title was just not going to work for Marvel. Everything had to be in service of the greater Marvel universe. And to be fair, you know, that was Marvel's bread and butter. Uh, The interconnectivity of the shared world that the superheroes inhabited was what propelled Marvel to the popularity and success it achieved. But the thing is, it didn't always work well when dealing with monsters. It's interesting to see Spider-Man and Dracula hang out together. And it does allow for some really, you know, bizarre and wacky stories, but the horror of Dracula gets lost. And it's the same with Man-Thing. It's interesting, even fun, to see Man-Thing interact with Reed Richards and Tony Stark and The Thing. But the cost of that interaction is the loss of the real hard-hitting, powerful stories. Wait, I can hear you say, in a way as to set up my next point, Hard-hitting and powerful stories from a Swamp Monster comic? Yes, absolutely. Over the course of this show, I hope I've shown, at least a little bit, that Steve Gerber was a damn good writer. Quirky, yeah. But he had an amazing ability to create fantastical and horrific worlds and situations while at the same time delivering a satirical message to rival that of Jonathan Swift. And I think trying to shoehorn the greater Marvel universe into these stories takes away from that and it detracts from the um, from the satire and the parody. Now, it may seem like I'm kind of down on this issue or issues like it. I'm not. I, I enjoyed reading this. I enjoyed it quite a bit. I just prefer Gerber's other type of storytelling more. You know, it's, it's funny how you can like something, like one thing while preferring something else. And yet, get equal but differing types of enjoyment from them. Yeah, that is kind of weird, isn't it? So anyway, I enjoyed this, uh, this comic. It's, it's a lot of fun. It's a romp. But I'd like to get back to the swamp and do some more hard-hitting satire. So, that's it for today. Uh, I will be back in two weeks with Man-Thing number 11. Uh, my plan is to is to do the ongoing series as the main episodes every two weeks and i'm going to try and i say try to do shorter bonus episodes covering you know crossovers and various other appearances as you know 10 15 minute episodes on the off weeks and i will try and i say try to fill in the gaps and maybe have this thing be a weekly podcast but no guarantees because i know me and I'm fully aware of my ability not to do things. But I am going to try. Anyway, thanks everyone for listening. I really do, yeah, I really do enjoy doing this. And um, I hope you like listening. Uh, regardless, uh, let me know what you think on Twitter, at Nexus of All, or go to the nexusofallrealities.com website, which will actually redirect you to daddyelk.com, which is my blog, uh, and because that's where this lives now. And you can leave me a comment on this episode. And before I go, I want to say uh, thank you to everyone who has sent me messages and tweets and encouragement during my uh, my time off. Uh, you know, my difficulties, as it were. It really was appreciated and helpful. So, yeah, a heartfelt thank you to all of you. I guess that's it. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna end this now. And uh, I guess there's nothing left to say. But goodbye and keep it swampy. You've been listening to The Nexus of All Realities, a Man-Thing podcast. The Nexus of All Realities is a Daddy Elk production. Man-Thing and all related titles are copyright Marvel comics and no infringement is intended. The show can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and the podcatcher of your choice. You can contact the show via Twitter, at Nexus of All, or email comments at nexusofallrealities.com or online at our website, nexusofallrealities.com, where you can leave a comment on individual episodes. The Nexus of All Realities, a Man-Thing podcast, is for entertainment purposes only. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained?